0: All right, let me take you into the word of God this morning to share with you a very basic truth, John chapter 8, and some thoughts that go with this message, the title of which I've given is Victory Over Yourself. So in John chapter 8, let me just read for the introduction, beginning at verse 33. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed And were never in bondage, never in slavery to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, or slave. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever." Now look at verse 36. That's been our tag on the radio broadcast for just about 35 years. Verse 36, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. What we want to know today is what precisely did Jesus mean by that? What type of freedom was he talking about? The context gives it away, as it usually always does. But let's take a look at these things. 1973, I was a senior in high school. And that year, a book was written by a psychiatrist by the name of Carl Menninger. Many of you have either heard the title, seen it, or perhaps, like myself, have read the book. And the psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, proposed the question in the title of his book, Whatever Became of Sin? Now, we expect these, which, oddly enough, we don't get any longer, we expect these questions to be proposed and answered by preachers, which, in many cases today, they're not. And we don't expect that these questions would be proposed and answered by a psychiatrist, which in some cases they are, and certainly in 1973 it was. In this little blurb from an article written about the book, I have it in my library, I have read it. The uh, author of the article says, in 1973, the world-renowned psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? Now listen carefully to his explanation. In his book, the doctor projected the day would come when sin would no longer be an element of the human vernacular. He speculated that the explanation of sin and wrongdoing, keep it in mind, this is a psychiatrist writing, not a preacher. He speculated that the explanation of sin and wrongdoing would be replaced by rationalizations excusing individual accountability. Manager predicted the term sin would be replaced with words like illness, disorder, dysfunction, syndrome, and so on. The human condition would be excused as a product of biochemistry, environment, experience, and trauma. He projected that even crime would go unpunished, as criminal activity would be justified and minimized as the result of some medical abnormality for which one could not be held responsible. According to manager's prognostication, the day was approaching when practically everyone would be considered sick and their conduct pardonable. No longer would there be any liability for human error, choice, and willful conduct. Everyone would be innocent, vindicated through biology, psychiatry, and humanistic reasoning. Another little blurb about the book manager, who is a psychiatrist, a medical professional, and not a theologian, warned that the concept of sin become eliminated from open cultural discourse, any hope of a moral society would indeed vanish and chaos would ensue. If you're interested, pick up the book and read it. It is a good read. I read it years ago. It's in my library somewhere. You can only get a hard copy of it. You can't get it on your Kindle or as an ebook. Whatever Became of Sin, that's the title of the book, Carl Manager. Now remember, once again, this is a psychiatrist speaking. And not just any psychiatrist, not someone out there in the boondocks somewhere no one's ever heard of. This is Carl Manager of the Manager Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. It's one of the world's most famous psychiatric institutions in the entire world, especially in America. And he wrote about that when I was a senior in high school, that the term sin would just be pretty much eradicated. As I mentioned, we don't even hear it very much, even from pulpits any longer. And by the way, some of these words that he talked about, we do hear from pulpits. And as I've mentioned to you before, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, if you see a PhD behind a preacher's name, not THD, it's a doctor of theology, but their PhD oftentimes is in counseling. means they had a heavy concentration in their studies on psychology. But my view is this. Preachers are supposed to be preachers. supposed to preach the book and that just makes sense to me I am not going to say that psychology is of no value at all that would be going too far but to stick with the point here's a psychiatrist in 1973 when many preachers were not then and more are not now saying whatever became of sin whatever came of personal responsibility We're not going to read it now, but if you were to go to the back of the book, in the book of the Revelation, where we see the world, anyone who's ever lived, standing before a great white throne and God judging them, we would have to suppose, number one, if that event is true, and God is judging them and sending them to a place that we know is the lake of fire or eternal darkness that Jesus talked about, it would make God unrighteous. Think about it. If the event was actually true or going to be true, It would make God unrighteous because it means that He's judging people so unbelievably harsh for things they couldn't control. If these things are true, if there is no such thing as personal accountability, it would make God unrighteous and man righteous. Now, if it is true at the back of the book, and I believe it is, then what happens is that God holds everyone responsible. And this, of course, we read in the Bible God holds everyone responsible for their thoughts for the words, for the deeds. Now, we can say a lot of things, including as this little blurb here from an article about the book states, you know, we can give a lot of reasons, which I could say are just excuses as why I do what I do, even though it's against God's word, violates God's word. And please keep in mind, all the things God says for us to do that we don't do, which is same result. Then I could go before God if it was a disorder and whatever. I don't even like the word dysfunction. I mean, it's appropriate, you know, if you're not functioning, it's dysfunctional. But when there's problems in the family, it's due to what we read in the Bible, sin. When you have a baby just born, we hear the words of David, "In sin did my mother conceive me. I was conceived in sin because all have sinned. Solomon said there is no man that doesn't sin. We have a culture now where we have neglected this. We have forgotten this, or perhaps in some cases for you, you never even heard it. And so we are stuck with many, many problems that we can't seem to find a solution to because the names have been changed and substituted. If you want to get into an intelligent discussion, not yelling, screaming. I mean, you're picking a point of view and somebody else has a point of view. It is a great necessity that, first of all, the parties all stay calm and don't get emotional because that's a logical fallacy. If I say something louder than you, it doesn't mean I'm right. Secondly, we have to define the terms. So when I'm just talking to somebody, and again, I told you some years ago, somebody asked me, was I a fanatical preacher, pastor? And I asked him, I said, what do you mean by the word fanatical? See, I got to know what his terminology means. Am I a fanatic as in a cult leader and all these false teachers and so forth? Well, no, no, I'm not. I said, but if you mean by fanatic that I'm dedicated 100% to what I'm doing and what I believe in, then it just depends on how you define the word fanatic. So You're in a discussion, I call it a discussion, you're in a discussion over any issue at all. You've got to stay calm in order for that to go anywhere. Oh, the third thing, too, is that you actually have to have a heart to hear the truth, that you can't have your agenda, no matter what is said, no matter what evidence is brought into the discussion, into the argument, you can't say to yourself, I'm going to reject all evidence, I've already made up my mind, what the answer is. You have to have an honest heart, you have to stay calm. And you have to make sure that terms are clearly defined. These are the rules of debate. Like if you were ever in a real debate on the college campus, these are the rules. you got to define the terms. What do you mean by this word? Managers stated, and obviously he was right, as we have done away with the word sin, we have taken personal responsibility, liability, and other things away from the individual. And listen to me. I'll quote something for you later that will help you out on this line. When we use the word Christian, it's getting very difficult to define what a Christian really is if we don't use the book. We don't define with the words that are in the book and what they mean, what they actually mean in the context. For instance, here, if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. What did he mean by free? Did he mean America, where we can pretty much do what we want? No, that's not what he was talking about. But we will get to what he was talking about, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have now situations, as I just mentioned to you, that are not only incredibly either amoral or immoral. We have situations that are just clearly unintelligent. I don't need a medical doctor to tell me men cannot get pregnant. I somehow intuitively understood that from a little child. But you know, the human mind, when it's outside of God's commands and violating God's commands or not applying God's commands, the intellect has a way of becoming twisted so that you could rationalize just about anything. And to some people's minds, this will actually make sense, when to the rational mind, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. None. So with that in mind, I want to bring to you this subject of victory over yourself, because that's what Jesus was talking about here. He wasn't talking about getting a victory at the polls, though we are blessed with a society where we can vote people in or out. He wasn't talking about getting victory inside your church, you know, as a preacher so you can control everybody and whatever. The one point of the gospel is for you to get victory over yourself. And I'll explain to you how and why. With respect to manager's statements and then others that you can read about as well or research it, we have to understand the power of sin, what it's done. Pushing aside these other euphemisms or terms that are just basically switched for a biblical term, the power and problem of sin is its terrible effect, so much so that the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, we could say, well, yeah, right. That means no one's perfect. That's not what it means. It means that because of sin, there is a great divide between all men, all women, and God himself, and without his mercy and grace, which we read about in the Bible, there is no way at all ever that we'll see God in his heaven, Never. That's what sin is. That's the problem and the power of sin. We have to understand that. It's affected everything. It's affected our bodies. It's affected the way we think. It's affected our environment. We see this in Romans 8. It's affected nature. It's affected everything. So we don't really have a clear picture of what is perfect other than what we read here. So I read to you now about the power of sin from the fifth chapter of Romans. Wherefore, as by one man, right, that would be Adam, sin entered into the world. This is Romans 5, this is verse 12. This is very important. Because Jesus is saying here that if you sin, habitually sin, and purposely sin, you are its slave. And you are not free. And you will not remain in the house forever. Because you're a slave. It's an analogy while he's also talking about a reality. In the 12th verse of Romans chapter 5. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. What that's saying is that once we have the moral law given to us, light is shined and we can understand the problem. But even without that, it didn't stop the power of sin. In other words, Adam died, Eve died. God said, The day you eat, the day you touch the tree, you know, eat of the tree, you will die. And he didn't die immediately, right? But he did die eventually. The very last line of the 50th chapter of Genesis concerning Joseph is that they buried Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. And we've been dying ever since. That's the power of sin. It said, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, that purposeful, willful, going against what God said not to do, who is the figure of him that was to come, which is Jesus. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as by the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they that receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot here and much more that I could cover in one message. But it narrows down two things. The effect of sin has been permanent, in a manner of speaking, permanent. It's touched everything, as I just mentioned. It's touched every human being, and even nature itself, sin has affected everything. Jesus Christ comes, as we do each week at communion service. We remind ourselves that the blood that he shed and the sacrifice on the cross is a forgiveness of sins that are past. It's an expunging of the debt of those sins. But what is not clearly understood, and we cover this Wednesday in Bible study, what seems not to be clearly understood is that when Jesus said in John chapter three, ye must be born again, what that actually means. It's more than just a theological doctrine, an ideology, a kind of a mystical, hard to explain what it really means to be born again. It's actually pretty easy to explain. You shall be a new creation. It's an act of God. It's not an act of men. Men cannot reproduce this. God alone can do it and does it. But it means that your inside has changed. Your direction in life has changed. This is the way the world is going. According to sin, the person who has been born again after repentance and brought to God is going in an entirely different direction and living an entirely different life. In 1 John, we read, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you we stand for things that are biblically oriented or biblically mandated and you stand for them is a great opposition to that not only out there outside the walls of any given building called the church but even inside the church and that's because of sin we read in john chapter 8 the slave abides not in the house forever but the son abides ever look at verse 34 if you're still there in john chapter 8 Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin, and that means the habitual practice of sin, is the servant. You're a slave to sin. Let me say this way, just substituting just for a moment, you're a slave to yourself. We understand physical slavery when people in a nation, could be an entire nation in history past, become physical slaves to another nation. Well, we understand that. But what we don't seem, well, at least some don't seem to understand is that we are often slaves to ourselves. And the real problem here is that if it's not clearly understood that the victory that you really need is over yourself, then you look for anything and everything else as the cause of your unhappiness, of your bondage, of your depression and anxiety and so on. You look for anything and everything. And it's not that difficult to find because people will hand it to you. But God says here, the victory that you need... And the freedom that I'm talking about, this is God speaking, right? Jesus is God come in the flesh. The victory that I'm talking about is a victory over yourself. Now, I have often told people, and I believe this, if you want to find out, discover where all of your problems are coming from, just look in the mirror. And you say, well, that's a, little, a bit of an overstatement. And I would agree, yes, it is a bit of an overstatement. Problems in our marriage are coming from sin. Problems in our children, with our children, between our children is coming from sin, Inside the church, it's all sin. It's all one thing that God talks about. Like a got metastatic disease, metastatic cancer, it's, it's throughout the body. It's everywhere. But God had a solution. It's not only to forgive us of things that we've done that we now know are wrong, that we've admitted are wrong, but to free us from sinning, to free us from the habit of sin, so that we are no longer slaves. And then he says this verse here, verse 36, And if the Son therefore shall make you free, you're free indeed. It's not belonging to a group. It's not being on, we hear this is an operative phrase. I've had it said to me from an Olympic gold medalist, believe it or not, in a discussion that I had a couple of years ago about some issue on social media. And she and I went back a little bit. And she told me that I was on the wrong side of history. Well, it's an operative phrase. You're going to find yourself on the wrong side of history. Let me give you some help. If you want to be on the right side of anything, follow Jesus Christ. Amen. And you'll be on the right side of his story, of history. To give you an illustration of the power of sin and a little lesson in American history at the same time, let me tell you about a 13-year-old boy who lived in the 19th century who was a slave. He was a slave here in America, black, and how the gospel touched his heart and how it affected him. Let me read a little bit from his biography. The words of this at the time, well, he was an older man when he wrote these words. This is the third draft of his autobiography. But he wrote this. He said, Previously, to my contemplation of the anti-slavery movement and its probable results, my mind had been seriously awakened to the subject of religion. Now, remember, at the time, he is a slave here in America. I was not more than 13 years old when in my loneliness and destitution, I longed for someone to whom I could go as to a father and protector. The preaching of a white Methodist minister named Hanson was the means of causing me to feel that in God I had such a friend. He thought, it means the preacher, he thought that all men, great and small, bond and free, were sinners in the sight of God, that they were by nature rebels against his government, and that they must repent of their sins and be reconciled to God through Christ. I cannot say that I had a very distinct notion of what was required of me, but one thing I did know, well, I was wretched and had no means of making myself otherwise. I consulted a good colored man named Charles Lawson, who obviously would also be a slave. And in tones of holy affection, he told me to pray and to cast all my care upon God. This I sought to do. And though for weeks I was a poor, broken-hearted mourner traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened. Please keep in mind, this is a 13-year-old American slave. Well, this is the final draft, 1882, but he began writing when he was younger. Let me say it again. This I sought to do, and though for weeks I was a poor, broken-hearted mourner, traveling through doubts and fears, I finally found my burden lightened and my heart relieved. I loved all mankind. This is slave speaking. I loved all mankind, slaveholders not accepted, though I abhorred slavery more than ever. I saw the world in a new light, and my great concern was to have everybody converted to Christ. My desire to learn increased, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Bible. I gathered scattered pages of the Bible from the filthy street gutters and washed them and dried them, that in moments of leisure I might get a word or two of wisdom from them. By the way, as a parenthetical statement, it's kind of a wonder how he would get pages from a Bible in a Christian nation that are in the gutter, but that's another story. My desire to learn increased, and especially did I want a thorough acquaintance with the contents of the Bible. I have gathered scattered pages of the Bible from the filthy street gutters and washed and dried them, that in moments of leisure I might get a word or two of wisdom from them. While thus religiously seeking knowledge, I became acquainted with a good old colored man named Lawson. This man not only prayed three times a day, but he prayed as he walked through the streets, prayed at his work, prayed on his way, everywhere. His life was a life of prayer. And his words, when he spoke to anyone, were about a better world. Uncle Lawson lived near Master Yu's house, and becoming deeply attached to him, I went often with him to prayer meeting and spent much of my leisure time with him on Sunday. The old man could read a little, and I was a great help to him in making out the hard words, for I was a better reader than he. I could teach him the letter, because he could read better than this man that was discipling him. But he could teach me the spirit and refreshing times we had together in singing and praying. That little excerpt is from the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, who so many of you know as a great abolitionist and reformer, who himself was a slave and very influential in the repeal of slavery here in America. As an aside, let me add to it, Charles Finney in the Second Great Awakening was a leader in the abolitionist movement as well. There were many white ministers who were very influential, including a few overseas while we had slavery here in America. That included Charles Spurgeon as well as John Newton and others. In any case, here is a young man that was converted to Christ. And What many people don't know, maybe you've not heard this, but look it up, it's true, Frederick Douglass was ordained minister with the African Methodist Zion Church. It's got a long title, but it's Methodist Church. He was a minister of the gospel. And it's funny, not really funny. I mean, it's uh, not really that odd when we look at what the Bible actually says that that's not typically included in the story of Frederick Douglass when it's talked about. I mean, some do, but that's usually left off. Also the part that ministers did play in the abolition of slavery. But here's the thing. I want to make an analogy between what Douglass and many others experienced as real slaves, I mean slaves being owned by man, and us being slaves to ourselves, to the sin that's inside of us, the indwelling sin. But before I do, let me read one more quote from Frederick Douglass in his book, Life of an American Slave. And there's something here for us as Americans. Now, I know that some of you are watching from overseas on our live streaming from other countries, and you probably can relate to this. But here in America, Frederick Douglass, in 1845, wrote a book called Life of an American Slave. Listen. I find since reading on the foregoing narrative that I have in several instances spoken in such a tone and manner respecting religion as may possibly lead those unacquainted with my religious views to suppose me an opponent of all religion. To remove the liability of such misapprehension, I deem it proper to append the following brief explanation. What I have said... Now listen... What I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slave-holding religion of this land, and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be a friend of the one is of necessity to be an enemy of the other. Douglass wrote these words, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most dreadful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. If you didn't know what he was talking about, if you didn't know who was speaking, and as some of us as Americans, we would take exception to that. But I wanted to let you know that I happen to agree with it. I truly do. This has been part of my so-called journey, reading the Bible and watching. Well, first of all, watching myself, reading the Bible and listening to things I heard in ministers' meetings, not just about prejudice, but about all kinds of things. And on and on and on. We are identified as a Christian nation. Douglas put a great difference between that which is presented as Christianity and that which is found here in the book. And I'm with him on that. This is Christianity. It's Christ and what he said. So from actual slavery and an actual slave, we come to my use of a metaphor to say, okay, so what was Jesus talking about here? If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Now, let me propose something to you maybe when you first started to go to a bible teaching church some of us went to church where they didn't teach the bible and some of you did you went to the church you know they preached the bible but even at a young age you were saying to yourself yeah, i'm reading this here and i understand why this go on and that go on and this go on and that go on and there's really just one reason is because what's being said and stated here by jesus the apostles the prophets is not being held to by proponents of christianity but that's not my topic Not victory over Americans and victory over American Christianity and victory over the corrupt church or whatever. That's not my topic, and that's not what Jesus was talking about in this here. He was talking about getting victory over yourself, getting victory over yourself, for all have sinned, and that includes me, and that includes you. Now, we're washed in the blood, and we sing about it, and we're appreciative of that, and that's a good thing, but if we don't understand the purpose of Jesus saying you must be born again and of repentance and... All these doctrines point to one thing, getting victory over yourself, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So many professing Christians are still looking for freedom from the outside. This next election is going to make things different. We have one president who promised us change, and we got change, but not for the better. I, for one, have made myself clear, I do not trust flesh at all. I am not looking for my hope, my deliverance, or my freedom and my happiness to come from any flesh and blood individual. Not looking for that. Because there's only one that can do that. That's Jesus Christ. It's the only one that can do that. And he says to you and to me, you needed to get victory over yourself. Now, one who's been in ministry 45 years and has dealt with who knows how many people. It's a lot. And I've heard everything, and I've dealt with every type of possible situation that you can think of or guess with a human being. I don't know that there's anything I haven't dealt with. But so many, many times, you will hear others talk about problem they have with somebody else. Now, those things exist. They do. But the answer from Jesus of your freedom is getting victory over yourself. Look, when you come to church here, as far as I know, nobody compels you to be here, right? Nobody said, you're going in that door i we'll sit down. I've told you over the years, we don't hold hostages. Somebody wants to get up and leave, they just get up and they leave. I don't say, hey, where are you going? Shut the door and that guy. Well, Jesus didn't do that either. But I want you to clearly understand the words of Jesus. He's saying you need to get victory over yourself. So what I wanted to say is that it's not always, but far too often when I'm listening to someone, they're always finding the problem is in somebody else. It could be the group. It could be that church. It could be that preacher. It could be your father, your mother. And again, there's no denying that people have done bad things to us and have caused situations. No doubt about that. But what Jesus is saying is the answer to you really being free is getting victory over yourself. For whom the Son sets free is truly free. Look at what he says here. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let's go back a few verses in John chapter 8. As Jesus is in this discourse, look at verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word. I meet people very frequently, or at least frequently, who... So I used to go to church, and I would say, well, that's what you used to do. What are you doing now? When I was a kid, I read the Bible. That's what you used to do. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. You are truly my disciples if you continue, and you don't quit. Look at verse 32. and You shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Okay, so if we just stop there, then we could talk about the intellectual capacity and ideologies and biblical doctrines as well. And how you know, we're freed up in our minds and we know peace. But I have shared this with you before, and I want you to be honest with yourself. I can assure you, 100% assure you, I am honest with myself. I told you in a Bible study, I think I repeated it from the pulpit, when I was reading 1 John, which we've been studying now for a few weeks, and I came to that verse in 1 John where the Apostle John says, These things I have written unto you, that your joy may be full. The very first thing that came to my mind was that my joy isn't full. And you know what? I didn't look for a problem in the Bible. There must be something with me. Not in the stars, but with me. I told you I failed algebra twice. I'm still really not that great in math. Um, But when I'm not and I make errors in math, I don't say there's something wrong with math. There's something wrong with the teachers I had. There wasn't anything wrong with the teachers. There was something wrong with me. Of course, now I could go to a counselor in school with my lawyer. These things are actually happening. I'm not making that up. This is actually happening go to the counselor in school, bring my lawyer, and dare the counselor to actually say, the problem is not with algebra, the problem is your understanding of algebra. And for me to have my lawyer rip out papers and say, how dare you talk to this young man who's got mathematical dysfunction <laughs> and who's uh, uh, algebraic disassociation. And then you're on medication and there you go. Which doesn't clear up your math problem. It may clear up some of your other problems, but it don't clear up your math problem. He has an algebraic disassociation. And when sin permeates the intellect, the intellect gets twisted. So things that are like common sense are not common, right? What's common courtesy? This is what sin does. Common courtesy. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be you know, just a person to have common courtesy. I held the door for two women just because I just felt like doing it. And they were like, I don't know, 15 yards away. I just said, ah, you know, I'll just stand here and open the door. Do you do this? Do you see somebody behind you just shove the door in their face? Or do you hold it for a second? Well, most times, 99% of the time, someone will say, oh, thank you. Or I always say thank you. People hold the door for me. These two women saw I was standing there. I just decided to hold the door. You know, they walk right by me as if I was just a statue. Now, inside myself, I said to myself, are you kidding me? I mean, this was a courtesy. But then I also said to myself, this is key. It was your decision to hold the door. They did not ask you to hold that door. So I said to myself, I have no right to complain because I was the one. Let me go back to this here. Look at The operative phrase has been around for a long time, like from the 60s. Hey, let's get real. We could talk about peace, but let's face it. The average professing Christian with Bibles on their laps or in their hands don't have any peace. That's right. Well, I wouldn't say any peace. They don't have the kind of peace that Christ talks about. I was honest with myself, and I'm being honest with you, when I'm reading 1 John a few weeks ago, it's a few months ago now, the first thing I said to myself was, I don't have fullness of joy. No. And many years before that, I'm reading where Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and I was heavily burdened by a lot of things, and I went to the Lord, complaining to the God, if you said your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and why am I so heavily laden? Would you think I could have figured it out? But I felt distinctly God speak to me in my spirit and say, because it's not my burden. It had to do with church stuff, not Jesus. Then it became easy. You carry a burden, what are we now? Are we going to have people build those personal crosses that we can carry all over the place to prove that we suffer for Jesus? You don't have to. Just live for Jesus. Just live for him. There'll be enough obstacles and suffering that come with it. When you try to overcome yourself, you have to be honest with yourself. You could tell me, oh, I'm so peaceful. I told you the story of a man at work who was mocking, because I brought my Bible with me everywhere, and he was mocking me about how Jesus and whatever, and he says, I'm just a happy, happy guy, happy. I knew that he wasn't, but no point in contradicting him, because he just argued about the point that he's not happy. I just said, okay, yes, fine. Weeks later, a few weeks later, not long, this is a big guy, too, and I had a little Honda at the time, and he said, can I talk to you? I said, Sure. And he sits down in my car. As soon as he sits down in my car, he just opens up and starts crying, sobbing. I'm so unhappy. And that wasn't the time to say, told you so. (laughs) It was a time to show compassion. It was a time to show to this man who was mocking me and telling me, and I've had this happen more than once, by the way, I'm a happy person. And he wasn't, then he became honest. I find that there's sometimes, please forgive me, I find sometimes that within our circles, there's a lack of honesty jesus promised us peace don't tell me oh you can't really have it well you're just contradicting jesus or joy the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long-suffering gentleness goodness faith meekness self-control that's the fruit of the holy spirit so for me and i'm speaking honestly to you i'm challenged by these verses because that's the standard i'm not going to stand here and say well you got to understand what the verse really means when it says the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long-suffering gentleness goodness faith and self-control that's what it means and when you find yourself not measuring up, don't question the book. Don't look at God. Don't look at me. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. You know, it's these people in government. It's you. There's something impeding. And the answer is found in here. We, saw, we sang the song, Show Me Your Way. I mean, it's a good song. It's a great melody. But I find for myself, forgive me, you know, I do play music. Sometimes these lyrics are a bit superfluous. And again, I'm not trying to be critical of the songwriter, but it's like, show me your ways. If I wrote the song, I would have said, help me to understand more about the Bible, because you've already shown me your ways. Right here, 31,102 verses. Your obligation now is to do what it says. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, when he was approached by her, and he said, they have no more wine, and he said, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Is one of the greatest, well, one of the greatest lines, but one of the greatest statements of faith. But she never even answers Jesus. This is Mary, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus. She never answers Jesus. She just tells the servants, whatever he says to do, do it. That's it. I mean, that's really classic. You talk about faith. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't argue the point. She just says to the servants there, whatever he says to do, you do it. And that's Jesus' first miracle that came from his mother. And it was in response to him saying, it's not my time. And she just simply said, He'll do it. Leads us to a great lesson about God. Sometimes we approach God and we have something in our head to say, well, this isn't going to happen. My question is, if that's the case, why are you even approaching him? Right. Why are you praying? Right. You're praying for something, but you don't even expect to receive it, and God has already said, if that's how you approach me, you're not going to receive it. So you're in agreement with God. I'm not sure you're going to actually answer me here, God, but... And God says, no, I'm not. And he wandered, It says, and he wondered at their unbelief. The victory that you're looking for is not a victory over the government, not a victory in the next election, other areas. Why did you ever marry that man? Or can we be fair? Well, it is Mother's Day, but why did I ever marry that woman? And you really think that the problem is the other person. I shouldn't say that. People are problems. You really think that your victory comes from the other person. They straighten out, you'll be happy. But then we have to straighten out everybody around us wherever we go all the time. they got to be perfect. Then I'm happy. But Jesus said no. And the Bible says no. He says you need a victory over yourself. You need a victory over sin. So let's go a little further before we finish today. You know, one thing I want to just say to you as a minister that is a statistic, about 84% of ministers, pastors, believe that they're on call 24 hours a day. I know I've told you I'm not. But you don't punch in and out as a preacher. 80% of pastors, this survey said just two years ago, 80% expect conflict in the church, which uh, when I was first in the ministry, I didn't expect conflict in the church, and I was in for a great surprise. And why is that? Let me explain it to you simply. Conflict between Christians and all this. You see, if you say, I'm setting out from this day forward to get victory over myself, and that's what you do. And I say, you know what, from this day forward, I'm setting out to get victory over myself. You know what's going to happen when we meet? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. Basically what you're saying to the other person, hey, are you struggling to live a holy life and to live for Christ? Yeah. Hey, me too. And let's walk together because you're agreed. But when I come to your church and I say to you, you got a problem and you may, (laughs) let's be clear about that. People (laughs) have problems. And you're the reason that I'm not happy. That's not true. You do have a problem. All right? That's my job, right? I got to tell people sometimes, you got a problem. But I cannot say and will not say to them, and you're the reason that I'm not happy. Because you attend this church and because of what you, you know, who you are, you are making me unhappy. Jesus said, no, no, no. When you follow me and continue in my word and do what I tell you to do, then you'll know the truth. And the truth will make you free. Then down in the verse where we read it, verse 36 And if the Son makes you free, you'll be truly free because for once you realize it's nothing outside of me that imposes upon me such circumstances that can ultimately make me unhappy or unrighteous or whatever. It's me. It's you. In 1 John, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, daughters of God, people of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now listen, and we read this Wednesday night, for those of you who were here, whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law, and you know the moral law, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, not just forgive them, but take away the power, and in him is no sin whosoever abides in him does not sin whosoever sins has not seen him neither known him all right then we go to here and many other verses like it little children let no man deceive you i want to paraphrase this for you little children let no man deceive you he that is doing what is righteous is righteous even as jesus is righteous he that is committing sin is of the devil for the devil sins from the beginning for this reason this purpose the son of god was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. That's habitual sin. It doesn't mean you don't ever sin. It means you're not doing it out of a habit anymore. You're not justifying it. We covered that Wednesday. For his seed, the seed of being born again, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That's First John chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. All through this Bible, this is the message. The problem that we have is with sin. Now, the struggle that we're having is what Manager mentions and others sense, is that that word sin is really, truly meaningless, not only for the world at large, but it's meaningless for a lot of Christians. There's no idea what this means. So in violating God on this level, that level, this level, that level, whatever, large levels, small levels, the heart becomes hardened and it becomes darkened. They begin to justify what you're doing. This was one of my favorites where pastors say, I want our church to be relevant. And I would debate sometimes and say, what do you mean by that? God has not changed. Satan has not changed. Man has not changed. The Bible has not changed. How much more relevant can you get? I think it's a problem with understanding what is grace really all about. What does mercy really mean? What does it really mean to be born again? And what it means, and I'm just putting it in a very simple way so you can understand it. It means getting a victory over yourself. Marvel not, my brother, if the world hates you. It's telling us right away that we're not going to be the flavor of the month. Or not only the flavor of the month, we're not going to be the flavor of the day on any given day for most of our life. Marvel not, my brother, because it didn't love him or didn't know him. It's not going to love you. It doesn't know you. Who are you? Why are you on the wrong side of history? I've spent a long time in this Bible, and I am very strongly convinced that I'm on the right side of history. Yes. We're seeing prophecies fulfilled Daily. And no other book in the world has even attempted to predict the future the way the Bible has done it. And over a third of the Bible is predictive in nature, much of which has already come to pass. We have no other book like this book that says, this is how it's going to be. This is how you'll know I wrote the book. And then we have this verse here where I'm going to finish. If the sun makes you free, you will be really free. Frederick Douglass, as you know, was freed as an American slave. But in his autobiography, he does talk about the fact that he never let go of his faith in Christ. And I read to you what he said when he came to a place of conversion. He hated slavery, as should we all. By the way, on that subject, I want to make one comment. We need to hear more anti-slavery statements today in our country against slavery that's going on all around the world. Because I'm not hearing a lot of it, and I see a fair amount of television, because there's six televisions in front of me when I'm walking on a treadmill. I don't hear too many people talking about the horrific slavery going on in major, major ways in big countries around the world. What happened to that slavery? But the real slavery, the worst slavery, is the slavery to sin itself. That's inside you, indwelling sin, and that's inside me. And the way to conquer that is you conquer yourself. Over 50 years ago, I read a book written by Floyd Patterson. At the time, he was the youngest to ever win the heavyweight championship of the world. He was 21. He was the first one to gain back the heavyweight championship after having lost the title. And the title of the book, which is where I got the title of this message, is called Victory Over Myself. That's the title of his autobiography. Floyd Patterson, Victory Over Myself. Now, from a guy who came from the ghetto in the inner city and all the struggles that he had, like Ben Carson, you know, Ben Carson, brilliant man. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. And he's got something else out now, too, that just proves he's a brilliant guy, but he came from a ghetto, a professing Christian. It just shows you that the victory that we're looking for is not found outside of us, it's found inside of us. It's getting victory over ourselves, yeah. over our fears and insecurities, over our hatreds and bitterness and our envies and all of these things. The victory is one that we get from ourselves. But here's what Floyd Patterson had to say, and I'll leave you with this. This is Floyd Patterson. It's easy to do anything in victory. It's in defeat that a man reveals himself. Now, I ask you every week, so I'm not going to have you raise hands and all that, but you're going through a rough time right now. Here, there, everywhere, it's a rough time. It's going to reveal who you really are. That's right. Because it's testing you. It's in defeat that the man reveals himself. And what other thing he said as well, I've learned so much, so very much about myself in defeat I've learned very little to nothing in victory. It's in the attempt and you fail. It's in the trials. It's in the testing. It's in the pressure. It's in the stress that none of us like, we are human beings, that, as I mentioned during communion, that Jesus is putting us in the refiner's fire. Let me ask you, you're intelligent people, right? Most of you are intelligent people. (laughs) Did you think the refiner's fire was going to be something like a massage? Is that what you thought? Well, the refiner's fire is hot, and it's stressful. And it can bring you, and I know I've been there, right to the edge. Right to the edge. And you feel like, and I've actually told God this, if there's just a little bit more, I'm out of grace. I won't be able to handle this. And then all of a sudden, God comes in, and he cools you. You that use tools, you know what tempered steel is. It's heated and heated and heated, and it's cooled down and heated again. And cool down until it becomes, theoretically speaking, unbreakable. That's what God is doing in our lives as we get victory over ourselves. He's making us unbreakable. Unbreakable. Father, we don't like the process, and I'm not sure I've met anybody who actually likes the process, but as we go through it, we will and do like the results. As he says in Hebrews chapter 11, it's out of weakness you make us strong. It's out of defeat that you give us victory, like Patterson mentions. They learned nothing in victories. It was always in defeat that he learned how to be stronger and tougher, more of a champion, and and a gentleman as well, as he was called, the gentleman boxer. Father, help us to learn that we are struggling certainly against sinful people, wicked people, awful people, and some of them right in our own circles of friends and family. But the victory that we need is over ourselves over our thoughts, over our unbelief, and over our hatred, and so on and so forth. I pray today, God, that this message would sink in deep into the hearts of those that are sitting here, those that are watching by way of the live stream, those that are listening by way of the radio, that we would understand that the real battle that's going on is right inside of us, in our minds, in our hearts. And you've given us the victory. We read Romans 6 and Romans 8. You've given us the victory help us to stay faithful to the end and get victory over ourselves. While your head is bowed and your heart is bowed before the Lord, I just want you to consider, do you understand what Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about overcoming yourself. That the real problem is not with mom, dad, whoever, you know, husband, wife, children, your boss. The real problem is inside you. And it's not that people don't do bad things again, evil things that they, they will definitely give an account for. It's just that it's the response. is what are we going to do with this stress? What are we going to do with this refiner's fire? That The object of salvation is to be brought into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And that is a very high calling and not one that's easy to achieve. I just want to, as we're praying, to, you know, just pray that you understand this. That's the real battle. It's, It's the one that's going on inside of you today. So one more time, Father God, we are being stressed. There is wicked people in the world, wickedness, wicked ideologies, many things throughout history that are awful. But ultimately, as we read about this mentor to Frederick Douglass who went around praying all day long, saying, just cast your cares upon the Lord. Evidently, he learned as a slave, I mean, a real slave, he learned how to be free from the inside, though he was not free from the outside. Help us to take a lesson from this as we read from Douglass' autobiography. Help us to learn how to be free from the inside, even though the circumstances have not changed on the outside. And when you make us free, we will be free indeed. Two commandments, love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep this in mind. If you ever pray a prayer like I prayed some years back, one of those emotional moments, you know, God, I want your friends to be my friends. And God, I want your enemies to be my enemies. Boy, am I sorry I prayed that prayer. (laughs) I told God a few weeks ago, I didn't realize he had so many enemies. Um, That's what it means to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. His friends are yours, his enemies you know, are your enemies. But then loving each other, that's a difficult thing because we're sinful and weak and all that. So let's be exhorted once again this week to do that. Don't give up, don't give in. Overcome your discouragement, your temptation to discouragement. Become victorious. So Father, we go back out into the fray, back out into the fight, back out into the world. Help us, God, to be victorious in a world that's becoming increasingly evil. And help us to have victory in Jesus Christ. We give you all the praise today, Father. We give you all the honor. We give you all the glory in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen this morning? Amen.